I guess the thing we always talk about today more than ever are possibilities, losses, gains, losses in a time of such dynamic change. And perhaps uh, I think anyone will agree, no matter what they thought of the man's own life himself, the, uh, the sudden death, the assassination of Robert Kennedy, and one of the excellent reporters in America is David Halberstam, who won the Pulitzer Prize for his writings for the New York Times on Vietnam. And Mr. Halberstam uh, was in difficulties, for that matter, with President Jack Kennedy at the that's time. Right. And I was unloved, that's right. You were unloved. Yeah. And yet this book that you've just written, The Last Days of Robert Kennedy, but also it's retrospective, looking back to early days and changes, is a very moving one, but also a rather important one on the way, too. This is the book that's uh, published by, Wor by Random House. Yeah. And it's the unfinished. World Odyssey. is your publisher, I think. No, but it's <laughs> close. Pantheon <laughs> on top of it. Okay. <laughs> but the unfinished Odyssey, and the first thoughts, uh, you called it Odyssey because. Well, I think because he was always moving. I mean, changing and growing. I think in the sense that his travels took him through many things, and he, in, in the sense of a personal Odyssey, not a, a physical one so much, but it's a personal Odyssey, a growth. I think this uh, extraordinary capacity had to to grow and to change. You know. Uh, someone who kno knew him a long time ago said that the one thing that distinguished Robert Kennedy was his perpetual sense of outrage. And I think this was really an important quality because, and the fact also that he learned, I think not as some men do from their universities or from books, but really more from the world around him. And therefore, as he went and as he touched things, he reacted and he saw w what they were and he expanded all the time. Uh, so that in the early days, I think you could have taken him with this intense moralism, this, pa this passion, this intensity, and almost this Puritan sense, which he also had. And you could apply it, I think, because he was a social illiterate at the beginning of, of his career. I mean, social uh, illiterate. Social illiterate. Yeah. I mean, in the sense that, I mean, anybody, I think, who went to Harvard with Robert Kennedy, who was socially oriented, you know, on social issues, would be almost horrified by the fact that Robert Kennedy would, years later, be sort of the man that a generation of young Americans might yeah. turn to. I well, think. also, perhaps, what, even going back to beginnings, as you point out, in, in your book too, he he was a backer of Joe McCarthy. Joe McCarthy was on the I mean the committee. Yeah. He he did he was a counsel for it, and I think, I think you know that he had this uh, a sense of outrage, but he applied it I think to the wrong things. He was very much I think in those earlier days his father's son. He had he had really no sense of what the rest of the world was like and and why it was different and what poor men were like and how social problems create you know come out in crime and things like this and. And I think, you know, his earlier days, for instance, the McCarthy Committee and the Hoffa thing are, are hardly, you know, to his credit. But I think there was something about him as he went into the 60s and his brother's attorney general and he began to see what the civil rights movement was. And then in particular, I think in the, in the post-assassination years when he really began to see the dark corners of American society. And he began to apply that sense of perpetual outrage to the really great questions of American life, the difference between rich and poor, the, the question of a country which is so rich and so affluent and yet has, I think, you know, hunger and starvation and, and almost social immorality to it. I think that he changed and he became the great representative of the dispossessed. Well, you have both here, don't you? Because there's, a, there's obviously a paradox at work, also confl there's conflict at work, and a man, uh, power is an aspect perhaps in all men seeking office, the drive for power at the same time something was happening, something was, times are a change in Bob, yes. Dylan, in Bob Dylan's phrase, but something was happening to this one particular guy too yes. in political life. And he was caught, was he not, between two worlds, the world he knew, the traditional world yes. of making it, yeah. at the same time the awareness of another reality. Well I think so, and I think this became, he was almost a transitional figure in our life, in political life, at a transitional time I think for this reason, because he had done, you know, the earlier kind of traditional polit politicking. He'd been Jack Kennedy's uh, political campaign manager. He had, you know, uh, worked very easily with your fun-loving mayor here, you know, and, and all those other people, and, and had, had had really, I think, very few doubts about it. And then I think as he, he got into his later years, he began to see that I think maybe even some of the institutions were what warped of the society. He began to see just how difficult it was to be black and to be poor and how hopeless and how alienated. And he, was, he felt his, a moral intensity to represent this, yet at the same time, in many ways, this was really seemingly in the traditional sense 
bad politics. And he, he was caught in this transitional thing. He had the old advisors from the older days, the Sorensons, the, the O'Briens, who, you know, who told him in 1968 when he faced a political issue of, of great m moral intensity, transcending issue of whether to run or not. I mean, could you really hold the position that he held, uh, which was to be for the idealistic position in the Democratic Party? Could you hold this? And he had very carefully picked it up in the post-assassination year, very, very calculated to move to take that mantle that had been his brother's. Could you then move to this? And then in 1968, when the most transcending issue, the Vietnam War, was there, a step back and say, well, gentlemen, not this time because you cannot unseat the sitting president of the United States. And I think it's, you know, important that he, he was tied a little bit to the past. His earlier decision was rather uh, a timid one. He wanted to go. He was playing Hamlet. Half of him wanted to go, and half of him was holding back. And your book, uh, in the manner of a play, too, opens with this particular moment, see, the moment of his mistake, yes. really, the waiting, that is being the traditionalist rather than being having that sense of history that seemed to be evolving inside him. Yeah. And it opens with his meeting with now a congressman, Allard Lowenstein. Which was really interesting because Lowenstein, you see, was at that point held no particular position. He was a, a citizen insurgent. He was one of these people who went around and said that, that if the democratic processes of this country are to work, if we really are a democracy and we really have a, an electoral system, that it has to be put to, to use not on the minor questions of American life, but the great questions. And indeed, that something had to be done about the war. There had to be a referendum. People had to, had, this had to go before the people. And, and he, you know, had become increasingly a close friend of Robert Kennedy from being two rather alien people, one a almost predictable reformer, one of them the tough ramrod, he'd he gotten closer. And now, as, as you point out at the very beginning here, the reportage, by the way, the journalism, the writing of, of Dave Halberstam is excellent, and those who've read The Making of a Quagmire would know. In other words, is that you have, as a man, he would have apparently had great contempt for in yes. early days. Yes. The young reformer, you know, almost predictable, mm -hmm. too, almost a knee jerker. Since he in his was a traditionalist, yes, and, he, and, and, and since he, his idea of reformers were people who talked too much, who were too oriented to Adelaide Stevenson, who said too little, talked too much, and who were, you know, sort of knee jerk. And indeed, uh, he, uh, I remember in 1960, he went to a group of reformers in New York and said, "Gentlemen, I don't give a damn what you do. I'm just in here to see that Jack Kennedy gets elected president." And there was Howard Lowenstein, you know, who the most, the most reform-minded of the reformers. You know, the, Al's friends, you know, mock him rather gently his decency from among his many causes is you know the, the, the Civil War in Spain and there's a joke that goes an apocryphal joke about Al where a friend of his shows up in New York and says there's Al uh, here and his mother says oh no Al just left for Spain you know he never did like that General Franco <laughs> <laughs> so then so Al went to see him you know and said look you know, now is the time. Uh, you have, you've moved this was to early in 68. Well, 67, late 67. 67. He said, you know, enough of your speeches on, uh, on Vietnam in the, center and your, uh, in the Senate and your, your um, articles on the ghettos in, in Look magazine. The army is forming. We have been to the campuses. Lyndon Johnston is vulnerable. And uh, we're going to do it. And uh, Robert Kennedy, who was getting this conflicting advice, you know, half of the people telling him to go, the, rather so, the more socially oriented people, the social issues people, people like Ken Galbraith telling him to go, but the professional politicians who are supposed to be so knowledgeable, you know, the, the real, the, uh, those who are so deep in the mythology of politics said, no, no, don't go, you know, you can't unseat the sitting president. And of course, this would be a year in which some of our social issues finally surfaced into politics, so I think in retrospect, people like Galbraith would turn out to be better politicians than the politicians. But he was getting this thing, and he would have been, he'd wanted to go, and he was calling up people like Mayor Daly and they would Daly and these other governors and they would say, look, you know, uh, uh, Bob, uh, we loved your brother, we like you, we think you have a bright future, but this isn't your year. And he was getting this, and yet all these other people telling him to run. And, and as they said, you know, how many delegates do you have? You know, how many divisions does the Pope have? And so there was torn. And finally, he he tells this to uh, to Lowenstein that the that the uh, that the powers in the party have told him that they that he can't go. And Lowenstein looks at him and says, the people who think that the future and the honor of this country are at stake on Vietnam. Don't give a damn what Mayor Daley or Governor X or Chairman Y say, and we're going to do it, and we're going to win, and it's a shame because you could have been president. And so this was the meeting when yeah. he, uh, Lowenstein got the turn down. What's interesting is that Lowenstein, representing many young figures in the political world, were also traveling about the country and sensing, not just among the young, but 
for those who were in deep conflict anyway, right. middle class, others. But the deep malaise of the country, the deep malaise of the country about the war and about Lyndon Johnson and the fact that the country no longer believed in Johnson. The Johnson was vulnerable. You, you had this extraordinary thing where everywhere you went in 1967, no one trusted Lyndon Johnson, no one believed in the war, and yet the, the political mythologists were telling us that, of course, we couldn't do anything about it because the fact that no one was for Lyndon Johnson, nonetheless, he would be reelected president. And so Kennedy did not enter. No, he made a terrible mistake. And then uh, Eugene McCarthy entered in New Hampshire. Yes. And then came uh, the beginning of this particular conflict. Yeah, because McCarthy, who was really less tied to the past, who, who did not have people like, you know, Larry O'Brien and Ted Sorensen in, in his entourage, who sensed the new thing. Because McCarthy is a man of, you know, very considerable intellectual talent and capacity, and a man, you know, a very tough-minded man, sensed the opportunity and went in. And, of course, the thing began to break, and it began to it became quite clear, I think, midway through New Hampshire, that the President of the United States was indeed very, very vulnerable, particularly within his own party. And as such, the young people who had been Robert Kennedy's constituency and the eggheads and the intellectuals began to shift away from Robert Kennedy to Gene McCarthy, and he began, began to get very, very restless because he, was he realized he was losing the people that he cared most about, that he, whom he respected the most. And finally, of course, then he decided to go in, and he came in, and he came in rather clumsily. He blundered in, really. And, of course, he had trouble getting back the intellectuals and the kids because they had committed themselves to McCarthy, and McCarthy seemed like a very formidable and very attractive man, an almost anti-politician in a sense, and, and he wanted to get the kids back, and he heard that Al Lowenstein, who, whom was, was, was wavering, and on a bus one night in upstate New York, you know, they were together, and he said, Al, Al, is it true that you're coming around? And Lowenstein said, no, I, I'm sorry, I asked Gene McCarthy again, and I'm staying loyal to him. And that night, he sat back in the back of the bus, and he took out a piece of paper, and he wrote this note to Al, which I think is really very interesting, because it, it tells so much about him, and not only tells about Lowenstein, but really more about him. And he wrote, for Al, who knew the lessons of Emerson and taught it to the rest of us, they did not yet see and thousands of young men as hopeful, now crowding to the barriers of their careers, do not yet see that if a single man plant himself on his convictions and then abide, the huge world will come round to him, from his friend Bob Kennedy. And so uh, this uh, moving note that he wrote, whether he you know, was up on that up on Emerson, I don't know, he may have been, you know. I think he was, he, he, he read poetry in an extraordinary manner. But man. something, what's significant about this is that he was sensing now the nature of history itself, that he had missed something it's somewhere. A fatal mistake, yes. And you point out even the entry after McCarthy's triumph yes. in New Hampshire had a gauche aspect to it. Too, that he has this air about him, he too. He panicked in. He, you know, of, uh, he, of, he uh, panicked in, and he, and, he never he, and he never had his natural constituency, you know, the people who should have been his most, most committed to him, the, the kids, the best of the kids. And he would always say, you know, later, uh, someone say, you've got the kids, and he said, no, no, Gene McCarthy has the best kids. He's got the A kids, and I've got the B kids. And then someone would say to him, you know, but don't worry about it, Bob. Uh, you're going to beat Gene in the, in the primaries, and they'll come around. And he said, uh, no, I don't think so. And he said, yes, they will. He said, well, you know, but it'll never be the same for them. And he realized Throughout, there is this uh, double vision here on your part, or uh, the double dimension to Kennedy, that is the, uh, the traditional drive for political power in old ways as against what seems to be a newly born or emerging idealism. And it could be a sense, I know it's in, in the nature of his friends, George yeah. Smathers, was a he, Florida he, friend he, of his. At was the the old thing? friend, you know. An old friend. And Cesar Chavez is the new one. And Cesar Chavez. Do you realize that, I mean, this is an interesting thing about Robert Kennedy, because do you realize that most intellectuals in New York today, or liberal intellectuals, know of Cesar Chavez because of Robert Kennedy, because Robert Kennedy finally took his light and brought it down there and cast it up the platform, his own platform, and, and illuminated the plight of the grape strikers down there. And it was Robert Kennedy bringing almost... Cesar Chavez to national attention. I mean, it's an extraordinary thing. Uh, goaded by this young staff of his, you know, they kept saying these young, attractive men around and people like Peter Edelman, Adam Walensky, Jeff Greenfield, who really very disturbed about the state of American society and reflecting, I think, an entire generation's dissatisfaction with the quality of American life, not doubting that indeed we were more affluent in other countries, but wondering what, to what goal, to what good that affluence was going, what kind of a society were we? Were we really worth it? Were we, were we a decent society? And I think they reflected this, and they, they influenced Robert Kennedy a great deal, and they kept saying, you have got to go meet this man Chavez. This is intolerable. And finally, he did go down there, and he met him, and I think became, you know, consumed by the 
plight of the of these men. There's a famous story, you know, about him going down and holding subcommittee he hearings there, and there was some sheriff who was working, you know, for the owners, and the sheriff rather nice blustery fellow got up and started telling how he was protecting, rather condescendingly patronizing, telling how he protected these uh, poor grape strikers. Uh, we uh, take their pictures and we make sure that uh, they don't cross this uh, picket line here and do this because we're really doing it for their own protection. And he went on like this and Robert Kennedy kept nodding and finally he looked at him and his eyes very cold and he said, Sheriff, I just want to ask you one question. The sheriff nodded, big grin, said, have you ever heard of the Constitution of the United States of America, you know? Marvelous, and I think you know. I think this passion, and you know, I remember in nineteen in the campaign in 1968, going through there, through these areas of Southern California with him, and the speeches were very simple. They couldn't. I mean, they were not speeches of a Sorensen or a Goodwin. They were speeches that only a man, I think, like himself, could have written. They were his own speeches. They said very simply, say, decency is at the heart of it, that a man should work all day in the fields with his hands, and then that his son should go to Vietnam and die without ever having a chance to to rise higher than his father. That is indecent. That is unacceptable. Well, something was happening here. Uh, as, as David Halberstam is, is talking, we're talking about his book, The Unfinished Odyssey of Robert Kennedy, published by Random House. And uh, David Halberstam, you were part of the uh, journalistic crew going along yes. on this tour. The friends, the, 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 the conflict, the, the two strains in Kennedy, the new one emerging, listening more and more uh, to the younger. And, yes. and Sorensen, on the other hand, became General Motors' yes. client as against Ralph Nader. Nader, that's right. And so you have the younger friends now were influencing more, yeah. influencing more. Well, the great, there was a, for instance, nothing showed the split more than in 1967 when he made that major speech, you know, breaking with the president on Vietnam, which really was one of the most important steps that happened because I think right, that began more than anything else, I think, to seal the, the doom, I think, of the Vietnam policy if, if hopefully its deal, uh, doom is settled. And, and that night... Uh, he was with Peter Edelman, one of these young Turks, and he said, Peter, was I a big enough dove for you? No, said Peter. Good, said Bobby. That makes me feel a little better. But of that same speech, Ted Sorensen would say to Jimmy Breslin, it's a mistake. He shouldn't have made it. And Breslin, just amazed, would say, why? Breslin, who hated the war by then, who'd seen it and hated it, said, why? And he said, because Bob Kennedy is the last best hope for your children and my children, and we can't afford to have him in controversies this early. And I don't know what controversy Mr. Sorensen intended to save him for, whether there would be, you know, some farm program that was going to come up in 1972 that he was going to use the power the, for. But, I mean, I mean, the, the sense of irrelevance that they could hold back the tide of history. You used a very significant phrase that a comment you made, in controversy this early. Yes. You said a, this early. early. Yes, we're going to hold and him so, back for 72. Yeah. That somehow we'll all be around and we'll still believe in what Robert Kennedy stood for in 72. I mean, as though we are all a bunch of puppets to be, to be manipulated. Uh. So we come to the question of time and history, yeah. too. Uh, the traditionist was thinking four years hence, as though four years hence, 68 to 72 is equivalent to, say, 1920 to 24. Yes. Four years hence is no but longer the, but what But the velocity of life yeah. in America, I mean, the intensity of yeah. life, our communications yeah. are so yeah. good. I mean, for instance, I mean, you just take the, the March on Washington in 1963, and that was the high watermark, one sensed of, of the civil rights movement. It seems like light years away. I mean, one mo the, the velocity of life moves so quickly. One is one can be a very old politician at the age of 38 in America today because the times are really changing. And the kind of thing that, for instance, I mean, not to stay in tune with the kids right now for a young American politician, a man in his 30s, a Lindsay or an Edward Kennedy, is like a Democratic politician in the 1930s not staying in with labor. You know, I mean, it's terribly, terribly important. And yet, and yet somehow the, the idea that these kids are, are going to accept the cliches and the mythology of the past, I mean, the changing politics. They're not going to accept the, the patting on the arm of hack politicians. They are going to accept a politician who goes for high-risk issues, who challenges the whole quality you know, of the society. I put on a note here. It's, it's the question of the, in, the invulnerability of a, of a sitting president. At the time, how could one challenge LBJ? And I put down Laura Fermi, and now I know why I did it. She did a book on Mussolini, not to draw any comparison, but it was the last days of Mussolini, and no one even dared challenge him, yet he was through and only a few knew it. And she was saying, people, or those who were his opponents, the partisans, uh, were the ones who did challenge him, this, were so mesmerized, paralyzed by years and years of accepting power from above, that didn't know that Il Duce was through. Yeah. And so a parallel, again, I say without comparing the two men, but the situations are parallel, are analogous, yeah. in that the guy 
The power was no longer there, and yet the traditionalists said you have to go by the rules. Yeah, procedure. The rules. The rules. I mean, and, and I mean, probably Ted Sorensen still believes he's a liberal intellectual, uh, you know. Uh, a voice, but I mean, it, 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 one changes so quickly. The velocity of life is so intense, and one can be one can be a very old man, very young these days. One can be 38 years old and be irrelevant. Robert Kennedy it could not have come back and could not have sat out the war and come back in 1972. He, uh, there was a delicate, fragile uh, thing blooming for him once, and if he did not go for it, uh, it would never bloom again. So if we turn to the central figure again of your uh, tragic odyssey, the unfinished one, is that uh, there were beginnings in which there was a good deal of. Uh, ruthlessness, a good deal of old political hack work, and indeed hatchet work, as uh, Fred Cook would say in the Jimmy Hoppe case, and certainly as counsel for the, uh, for the McCarthy, the Joe McCarthy committee. But something was happening. And I mean, earlier you described a sequence in which you want to know what's happening among black people. And I remember this incident. I remember someone who was there, one of the writers. Yes, Jimmy Baldwin. I know Baldwin, but uh, Baldwin had called it, but there was someone else who, who had been there also. I think Rip Torn was there, the white actor. Yeah. Others. And they were amazed at the naivete. Yeah, I mean, he, Robert Kennedy. Kennedy, I think, called those. I think it was either in late '62 or early '63, and he called together a group of Negro intellectuals and writers and people like that. Lena Horne was there, and they had this meeting. And, and Robert Kennedy was, I suppose, ex expecting to hear a certain amount of grouching, and and then he would hear, you know, how pleased they were about how well the Kennedys were doing because the Kennedys they thought were being good to the Negroes. And of course, maybe they were, but it was one drop in a very, very big bucket. And the Negroes, you know. Just couldn't understand. I mean, his, couldn't understand his naivete. That that he did he re, did he not realize how far there was to go. And it was, the meeting was a shambles. And finally, I think when it was over, Baldwin uh, uh, said that he, uh, Kennedy could not understand the depth of our anger, anger, nor we understand the depth of his naivete. But of course, I think you know he changed radically from that. He began. I mean, inevitably, the inevitability of American life, the fact that civil rights was in the streets, that a, a generation of young Negroes was no longer going to tolerate what their parents tolerated, that they were going to take it into their own hands. And as Attorney General, he had to come down again and again in decisions. And there was only one way he could come down. And inevitably pulled in, sucked in by, I think, the forces of American life into, into, into the middle of, of, of the great civil rights struggle. And, and having been done, this, done, having done this, seeing how dark it was, seeing how complex it was, see, and seeing how important it was to do it. And also becoming aware of this, now the issue of the campaign. By the way, uh, Dave, as you're talking, you can also recreate uh, the, the, even the atmosphere of this tour, of the journey itself, uh, uh, going from state to state during yeah. the campaign. It, was rather, it seemed rather flip. Uh, uh, the the uh, advisors and all seemed not flipped so much. There was an air of uh, humor. Yeah, oh, it was marvelous. You know, there was, 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 was almost there was a, a campaign humor all of its of its own. I think much of it centered around Dick Tuck. I don't know if you've ever met Tuck. He's a, a marvelous man. He's the last comedian in American politics. I think the sole surviving humorist, uh, which probably tells a good deal about us and where we're headed. But uh, Tuck is Tuck is the man who put the spy, you know, on the Goldwater train, and he's the um, the man who. Um, had a stewardess go up to Goldwater and play and say uh, coffee, tea, or hemlock. And uh, in, in 1960, when Jack Kennedy uh, ran for uh, against uh, Nixon and won in the first debate, he hired a little old gray-haired lady to go up to Nixon at the airport and say, uh, oh, "Don't worry, son. Kennedy won the first debate, but I'm sure you'll do better in the next." And and Tuck, of course, was the wagon master and gave uh, and gave the campaign. And he was always oh, marvelous in Gary, Indiana. You know, he was in the Hatcher campaign. Bob Kennedy sent him up during that mayor. Mayor Alti race there, and there was the white machine against the black Hatcher, and Tuck was helping uh, Hatcher, and he realized that he heard from his sources that uh, the machine was intending to uh, to steal and have the uh, the Negro voting machines break down. So uh, most other people would, you know, scream and hoop and holler on that. Tuck very cleverly sent off to to Chicago for ten Negro pinball machine repairmen, got him up there, got a copy of the voting machine, tutored on it, and sure enough, on the day of the election, when all the black voting machines certainly did break down in the middle of the day, Tuck dispatched his own repairman with fake credentials and won it. So he was a, a heroic figure. But so he they gave could, they could fix the machine right away. Yeah, because they were very good. They, they yeah. knew how to do it, and and so the Negroes were able to vote. But uh, Tuck gave the campaign, you know, its humor. We would be uh, moving along, and uh, and we'd come into a town, and then Tuck would say. Uh, Say, I had that terrifically interesting uh, talk with those uh, guys. Did you talk to them? Say, no. What was it? He said, well, the four members of the McCarthy committee there in the local town, they, they just swung, uh, swung over to Bob Kennedy. You, you didn't talk to them? You didn't get that? Gee, I think everybody else did. And he was always needling us and pushing us like this. And then, of course, later on in the campaign, uh, Bobby uh, took the dog with him out to Oregon and... Uh, 
and uh, freckles. And I think, in fact, uh, John Glenn was out there too. And I think you remember Gene McCarthy saying he's trying to beat me with an astronaut and a dog. And and uh, we used to tease Tuck. I said, you know, gee, Tuck, there are you in charge of a Bob Kennedy's dog. Isn't that terrible? A brilliant political scientist like you. And uh, Tuck would say, well, it may look like a dog to you, but it looks like an ambassadorship to me. And, and this divided Kennedy. And he used to say from then on, when everything wrong, went wrong, he'd say, well, uh, Tuck, you just lost Madrid. So we come, there's the humor, but now we come to also a shift in the campaign with the stepping down of uh, President Johnson. The prime issue no longer became Vietnam now, yes. but black and white. Yes. And here was a shift. He was also not a shift, but he was also a new dimension added depth to the well, it, 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 Early April was a very tough time for Robert Kennedy. One, Lyndon Johnson withdrew, uh, in part not be just because of Gene McCarthy, but also because of what Robert Kennedy had done and, you know, the, the threat that Robert Kennedy really might win, win in California. And I think, you know, the politician in America that Johnson hated the most quite, quite clearly was Robert Kennedy. And I think the idea of losing to him in California was, was what drove Johnson out finally. I think he knew it had happened. And uh, suddenly, however, this hurt Robert Kennedy very much because a lot of people who I think were not terribly much enthused about him and, and willing to believe really I think the rather the worst about him, nevertheless, when he was contrasted with Lyndon Johnson, uh, were willing to go with him because whatever else, he was the one man they thought who might go all the way against Lyndon Johnson. Well, the moment uh, he uh, Johnson stepped out, they were re they were relieved from this pressure, and and they could once again, you know, make a decision between McCarthy, whom some of them preferred, the upper middle class people, or a Kennedy. And I there's, I think I wrote in the book that he had helped slay the dragon, the only students. to become and the, the dragon. A students. Yeah, yeah, the A students yeah. came back, but. Um, Gene McCarthy said a very perceptive thing about him at that time, he, talking about Johnson pulling out, and he said, uh, you know, uh, someone said, what's, what's going to happen with this, Gene? He said, well, it's going to hurt Bobby uh, more than, uh, than me, and, and someone said, why? And he said, well, because up till now he's been Jack Kennedy running against Lyndon Johnson, and now he's going to have to be Bob Kennedy running against Jack Kennedy. And I think there was a great deal of truth in it. And it was an, it was an interesting thing. Of course, it, it ended Vietnam really as an issue. It sort of suspended it to a large degree as an issue. And Bob Kennedy said always, himself had said that, that Gene McCarthy had a great problem because he was likely to be a one-issue man in the, in the campaign, you know, only Vietnam. But what really happened was, curiously enough, that Robert Kennedy, with this terrific passion for the poor and the dispossessed, himself, with Vietnam suspended, became increasingly a one-issue man, the poor in American life, the, the, the gap between the rich and the poor. And as you know, this is not a subject that people always want to hear about. There was a revelatory moment early or at least a moment, a, a sort of a shadow of things to come when he was making a set to go to South Africa to make a speech. Yes. And uh, obviously his original speech was almost an establishment type of speech, yeah. but he knew something was wrong. Yeah. And he called upon younger writers again. Yeah, and Lowenstein to come and in. And, and I think well, this is one of the more attractive things about him was the fact that to more than most men, he did not like sycophants. You know, I think one of the terrible things in American life is is the, is, is the instinct, I suppose, it's not American life, it's anywhere in the world. Great, powerful men tend to surround themselves with sycophants. They tend to hear, want to hear what they want to hear. They don't like people who will tell them bad news. And uh, I think this is one of the great tragedies of the Johnson administration, because Lyndon Johnson, more than most man, men, had this ego problem, this, this enormous vanity. And increasingly, particularly because of Vietnam, surrounded himself with sycophants. And the, the Johnson presidency was, was you know, known for the out-migration of the talented men and the escalation of the sycophants, you know, and the kind of people who really were telling him uh, what he wanted to hear. And I think this is the, the, there's enough isolation to the presidency of the United States anyway, but given Vietnam and something like that, it's just terrible. And I remember Walt, Walt Whitman Rostow, uh, so ably named by a for, for, foresighted father, uh, Walt Whitman Rostow was the man who uh, chose what he would see every day on Vietnam. And I have a very good friend named Ev Martin who had just come back from uh, two years in Vietnam. And uh, Martin is one of the most distinguished correspondents out there, very tough-minded, a very strong man. He'd been expelled. And so Newsweek, as it is wont to do, arranged a dinner party in Washington. Uh, the Newsweek uh, bureau chief and his wife, the Newsweek defense correspondent and his wife, Ev Martin and his wife, and Walt Rostow and his wife. And I mean, it was, I think, symbolic of those White House years that Rostow uh, spent the three-hour evening without once ever acknowledging that Martin had been to Vietnam. Well, that is a horrendous story. And I think what a lot of us liked about Robert Kennedy was that whatever else, he could take the heat and that he wanted to see things as they were. And he wanted to see the reality. He wanted to hear the bad news. That if somebody told him the dark news, you know, uh, 
that he respected that person for it. He didn't want sycophancy. I remember uh, Mike Forrestal, who was one of the very best people on Vietnam when I was there, the government people, and who more than anybody else, I think, really worked within the government to try and bring the government American opinion on Vietnam around, used to tell me that even at the worst time during the Kennedys, when they were giving me a lot of heat, that if you wanted to get a dissenting idea into the White House, the best conduit was Robert Kennedy. Instead, that's a terribly important thing because, you know, it's so hard. There's so much isolation that really one of the key things is almost not whether a man is really liberal or conservative anymore because the well, society... The, the labels really have little meaning anyway. Yeah, I mean, these phrases have very little meaning. I mean, the question really is how 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 accurately do you really see the society? I mean, I think everybody now agrees that if you really agree what's happening in American life on how bad it is, that most men will be moved to try and do something. I mean, the question is really, you know, how bad is it? I think, you know, I think it's very bad. And I think, you know, I think this is a terribly important quality, which is the willingness to see the darkness. You know, as you're talking, uh, the darkness, we think of George Wallace and a certain uh, shrewdness of his observation there about when he was asked by reporters who was for him. Yeah. Is he also know the darkness that created the campaign? Is he? What did he say now? Well, I, editors, uh, he said, he said you're, you're, he said, I know you guys. He said, your, your editors and publishers are for Humphrey, and you reporters, you writing fellows, you're for McCarthy, but your pressmen, they're for me. And thus there was a, even though the vote was less than he had anticipated, there was a basis to his observation. Oh, yeah, very much comments. so. And, only, and I think only a really all-out drive by the UAW in certain areas and other big unions cut it down a little bit. So right. now we come to possibilities at the moment, political and perhaps, well, uh, they can't separate the two. See, apparently, as you see it, as you were traveling and watching and observing uh, RFK, Bobby Kennedy, you, you saw a fusion was happening here, and that, in a sense, he could reach the blue collar, strangely enough, yes as well as the campus, as well, and certainly as well as the black and other minority yes. people. Well, he touched the blue, I mean, the, when the society is fragmenting, and it really is, I don't think this, the country no longer works. I mean, I think anybody who really thinks that American society works, better take a second look. I mean, I just think there's every bit of evidence, day in and day in out, the country no longer works. I mean, the, the alienation of the blacks, the success of the Wallace movement, this strike, the fact that the transportation doesn't work, the public transportation doesn't work, the schools don't work, the society, you know, doesn't work. And well, the most obvious thing is the fragmenting and the, the Negroes and the blue collar. Well, of course, I thought that Robert Kennedy was really the one man. He was considered by so many people a divisive man, and yet he was seen to me the one person who had a difficult time was almost a healing man because he could touch the blue collar people and he could touch the blacks, these two groups which are so nominally opposed to each other. And I didn't think that the problem in American society is really the, the person who makes $20,000 a year and lives in the suburbs. I think the problem is those people for whom the society has had increasingly less a meaning who are so frustrated and so alienated. In fact, I remember the first time you and I ever met. We had dinner that night at Ricardo's at the night of the Oregon primary. And the first returns that you brought in on Oregon were so horrendous. I, I think you had McCarthy ahead by 15% of the vote, which if it had been true, would certainly have killed Kennedy and destroyed him, I think, in California. And I remember that night, you just, I think, almost watched well, me Well, I was of green. a mixed mind. You were a mixed mind, but I was, I was kind of you know, I come off the Kennedy campaign. I thought he was the one guy who bought the country a little bit of time. I don't know that anybody can save the country anymore, Studs, because I'm not sure what kind of a country we are, what kind of a people whether we are, whether we're too smug or what, but, you know, whether we're, whether we're, whether, we're, whether indeed we're worth saving, I, I think this is the great well, wasn't question. Well, perhaps we come to something else, and the, here again we have this question of paradox. Wasn't there always a double strain to what is called the American dream? There was the push to a new land, getting away from some sort of uh, repression at the same time. There was genocide as far as Indians are concerned, and there was the uh, there were the slave ships. So there's a double dream. There's always the American uh, the American dream. dream. The American dream uh, has always had a certain theory and practice. And I think now we have a generation of young Americans who want to correct the practice, who want to stay with the theory and correct some of the practice, some of the injustices. And I think that this is indeed a good deal of your rebellion and your student body you know, is traceable to this. Perhaps they see what some of the young students are saying. Those who are concerned are saying, and perhaps. Uh, Robert Kennedy may have been recognizing this too, is that to say the American dream doesn't say it either because there w it was flawed to begin with. It had both, you see, but the flaw was there too. You well, know, they fell right, upon their knees and then upon the well, aborigines. Well, I think there's everybody, I think we're all quite willing to to admit that maybe the country has not even historically been what we said it was, and indeed only a good deal of fortuitous uh, luck kept it kept it as free as it was. The fact that you had an ocean on both sides of it and, air, and uh, 
and the fact that the climate is good. It's a God-blessed country. I mean, anybody, I think Khrushchev once looked around it in 19... Uh, uh, 60 when he came here, 59 when he came here, he turned to Eisenhower and said, Mr. President, you have a God-kissed, blessed country. I mean, it's incredible. But I think that Kennedy really was the one who was buying us some time as we tried to find out really what kind of a nation we were. I remember that night I was so discouraged because it seemed to me that if, that if the uh, re Oregon results were that bad, that he was out of it, it in almost ensured Humphrey's nomination, which in its, its place ensured Nixon's election and that we were going to lose four crucial years. And I don't know that we can waste time anymore. I mean, it seems to me we are, it is already, time is against us. Time is not working on our side anymore. We are closer to sort of a modified economic apartheid now than we even realize. And every day that we lose, we lose something important. Of course, Dave is, uh, Dave, uh, David Halberstam, my guest this morning. The book is The Unfinished Odyssey of Robert Kennedy. It's just his observations, notes, almost a diary in a sense of the trip of the last days of Robert Kennedy and the trip itself. And as you're talking, something was happening also to the reporters on this trip. You yourself, you're no longer, see, you know, the old cliche of, you know, the fictionary, the, uh, that the reporter is objective, is detached. No one really is. Well, I mean, I mean, is, is someone objective who is, I mean, you can have all kinds of objectivity and, objectivity. and someone, I suppose, is nominally objective if he goes out and he writes that Robert Kennedy, who is considered ruthless, did such and such a, today. and. And, uh, and indeed casts a lot of doubts about him and uh, what is he, is he really is sincere on this. And I suppose if somebody takes the viewpoint that the war in Vietnam is, is a horror and that it's destroying American society and that the country is coming apart, and then on that context impl implants his own view of what Robert Kennedy is trying to do, that's subjective reporting. That's, that's not objective. But you see, which is really, I mean, who are the historians who are going to finally credit? I think, I think that uh, there's more objectivity in a sense although a certain amount of passion in a book like this and in what is nominally now expected to be sort of the status quo reporting. And I'm saying that, uh, I was saying there is no such thing as yeah. objectivity, truly, as reporters discovered in a very literal way in Chicago. But the point I'm trying to make is there is no such thing. That no. The very selection itself. No, it's is the, the very point selection, the very front. The fact I want to come back to you because yeah. you're also part of this well, book. Sure. You see, there are two figures in this book, basically, as I see it. There's Robert Kennedy, but also David Halberstam because there's also a certain development in you. You see, I'm talking about you yourself. Yes. You were, the fact is, when you reported, it was President John Kennedy wanted to get your job, wanted to get yes. you kicked off yes. the Chicago, of uh, the New York Times. Times yes. Well, he wanted me to transfer from Saigon to, to Paris. I think he really was looking out for my best interest. Yeah. He, just, he just wanted, if he couldn't change the policy there, he figured maybe he could change the reporters as studs. So, so, and of course, obviously, I'd had misgivings. I mean, Robert Kennedy and I had gone back and forth a few times, and he was very angry, not only about my reporting from Vietnam originally, but uh, but I think the fact that I printed that anecdote in, in the book, The Making of a Quagmire, I think annoyed him a great deal, because he was terribly sensitive on one subject, which was John Kennedy. You could say almost anything you wanted to him ab about himself and about his own career, and he could take it. I think he, the one blind spot, and I think it's understandable enough, was, was John Kennedy. And so we had had a very uneasy relationship. And then suddenly, when I'd come back from Poland in 1966, I came back to the country after about six years overseas very quietly, sort of through intermediaries, we began to uh, meet each other. He was very generous, very sympathetic, and, w uh, I, mean, and I think a guarded respect. I don't think any reporter ever ought to be too close to a Kennedy because they are almost, there's, it's, the charm is too insidious, there's too much glamour, it's too easy to be lulled away from your, your, you know, your traditional responsibility. But there was no doubt, I mean, that I felt watching him that he was a good man in a bad time, that he sensed what the country was and what was wrong, and that he was willing to make a uh, a, a commitment. I thought that in running, even, even when he announced, and it was rather belated, that even so, the traditional mathematical mythology was against him, that he could not unseat Johnson. And I thought he, I mean, after all, even at the last minute, Edward Kennedy and Ted Sorensen were advising him not to do it. That you, I think they told him that if he, even if he won every single primary, it would take three quarters of the delegates mm -hmm. outside the South. And therefore, the odds were against him. But I think he did make that commitment, and I think anybody who sensed him felt that more than anybody in American life at that time, he understood what we had become and where we were failing and what our priorities were. And that he had a great, s there was a strength in him. He was not always a graceful man, and I think he was not always, in his earlier days, a, a generous man. And there are a lot of 
warts on him and limitations, but I think that on the important things he was good. And there was this great strength to him, I think a decency and a simplicity and a willingness to listen and a willingness to learn. He learned from human beings. Everything, was there something that was going on? Someone said that there were starving people in America. Robert Kennedy went to Mississippi to find out about it. And, and when someone said that there was injustice in the California grape strike, he would go down there. He had to see things and touch things himself. Some men learn from books he learned, I think, from experience. But as you're talking, too, we always come back to that crucial moment. And this is, a, again, this almost has a, a metaphorical aspect to it. This applies to crucial moments generally, to individuals, anyone, as well as to history itself. That decision that he did not make earlier, yeah. that with which you opened the book, book. that always haunted, haunted him throughout him, yes. the campaign. Yes, because it, he lost his natural constituency. Say, say he had gone in early. Well, he would have gone, therefore, into, say, Indiana with the upper middle class suburbs who are now very, very influential in American politics, very potent. He would have gone in with the kids. He would have gone in with the blacks. Therefore, the one questionable part, maybe the blue collar people, whom he had a traditional tie with, instead of going to them and cutting back a little bit on civil rights as he did a little bit in Indiana, because he was defensive. He had to win in Indiana. He was off balance. He'd made a number of stakes. He'd lost part of his constituency. Had he had his natural constituency, he could have gone to them and said, we must make this a better country, and you must understand the plight of, of the Negroes. You must understand that it is more difficult for them than it was for you, that, that, that this country has abused them more. He could have, I think, gone to a more generous position. He, was in a position. he would have been in a great position of strength in talking to them, and I think it would have worked. But because he went in late, he, in, in, even in something like this, he was off balance. His campaign was a little uneasy. He could not be what he really was, I think, at the beginning. And it was only later in the campaign, almost after Oregon, that he got his full momentum going. There are, as a, there are obvious incidents. There are incidents and events here that are quite dramatic and in which he fumbles. But the fumble is the fumble of someone that's quite human, rather interesting. When he got mad at the kids at Indiana, the medical students, yes. At Indiana, that's quite a scene. I'd like but to they're sitting that. there, and they're yeah. so smug. They're sitting there, and he's looking around, and he can tell that they're smug and, and, and that they don't care. And he finally, he starts t attacking American medical programs, and they're sort of booing him and hissing him a little bit. And finally, he says, I look around, and I don't see many black faces here. I don't, I don't see you. It's the blacks who have to go off and die in Vietnam, and you're here. And they started hissing, and they say, we're going, we're going to go. And, and then he said, you're not na there now. Di there are people dying now, and that's what's important. And then afterwards, we were on the plane, and he kept, he kept shaking his head, and he kept saying, they were so comfortable, so comfortable. And he turned to you and say, didn't you think they were so comfortable? And he hated the smugness of American life. And what's amazing here, again, c coming back to his beginnings and his, uh, the other work, is that he himself was that once upon a time. No. In the yeah. sense that the reflection of himself, of what he was. It, basically, the odyssey, again, not only is it an odyssey geographically, the trip across the country, but the odyssey it's human, also... It's a human, it's a growth of expansion, you know, from really, the, from, from really very much Joe Kennedy's son, I think, a person who, who, had, who didn't like liberals, who had doubts, who really saw probably, the, saw Hoffa as the major social problem of America, and who didn't really know any Negroes, who was really a rich man's son in a way, although different, a Puritan, a passionate, I mean, less graceful than his older brother, always. I mean, Robert Lowell is a quote about from Robert Lowell, watching him at a party, at a cocktail party, and looking at the toughness in, the, in him and saying, he's unassimilated, isn't he? And that's really true. He was the, I mean, he was still the odd man out. Edward Kennedy, taller, more handsome, is more at ease with people. Robert Kennedy was the runt, the little man, way down in that family. And because he was that, too, that may have been a factor, too, throughout. Another haunting aspect that he's out for it, for non-altruistic purposes throughout, even when he went to see Chavez, see, yeah. even when he was in Watts, you see, there was always this, this thought, this that doubt, maybe has, and everybody, of which so he was aware quite so obviously. Was, everything he did was always doubted. If he, if he didn't come to champion the Negroes, everybody would say, well, Robert Kennedy is really very, very conservative, and we always, uh, never, we, knew, we always knew we didn't like him, and look, he's not really going after the poor. But if he went and championed the poor, say, well, why is he really doing that? What do you think he's after? What do you, why? Well, I don't think anybody ever saw him with the poor and saw him touched by the poor, ever doubted his sincerity. I remember uh, some of his staff gave him a hard time at one of the Indian reservations in, in, in South Dakota. They were spending too much time there, and he got really angry at himself. You people don't really care about suffering. But then also comes to the question, was he realizing this question asked you, was he realizing also a bottom-up uh, feeling uh, for expression, a bottom-up as well as top-down? I, I don't understand you know? that. Uh, you mean that? pressure from below to 
Did he sense that that was a factor, pressure from below, or the bee demonstration of protest, you see? Well, I, in, I think what he felt by and large was that a lot of those people who were protesting were protesting the right things. I don't think they were pushing him. I mean, I don't think they were making him uh, opportunistic or anything like that. I think what he really, what upset him most was that... No, uh, I'm, 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 I was, I was thinking exactly the opposite. I was saying, do you recognize the... the the authenticity of this. Yes, that, the genuine. That this, that this is also part, would be one of the hopes for America, is that yeah. from the bottom up, as well as yeah. doing something good for people. Oh, I think so. That I think he felt that there probably w was, for instance, in, in many black kids, a newness and a freshness and a, and, a kind of, and a kind of spirit and quality which, if it were somehow channeled into the society, could make this a much better country. That if, if it could kept from being too alienated, too much out of society, if there was a new hope, new ideas, a new freshness of spirit. So you have, of course, also in the wanderings a revelation to, hi to him as well as to reporters, too, hitting Nebraska, so seldom hit uh, uh, ever since the days of William Jennings Bryan. Well, I think, for instance, I mean, for instance, I think that again and again, as he, the more he was on the road, the more he saw the country, the, the, the more radical he became. I think that the, if he stayed in Washington, he accepted the existing mythology, and then he would go out and he would see the country, and he would see what was happening, the cities, and he would talk to the Negroes. And the more he did, the more restless, the more radical he became, until he really said, you know, we just got to do something about the institutions of this country. They no longer work for the benefit of the people, they're blocking people. They're an obstacle. We've got to modernize them. We've got to change them. So what? So I mean, and, 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 and the more, and, and as this happened, you know, he would meet, you know, the traditional politicians. And then here is Robert Kennedy, who's considered by so many people such a politician. And yet, when he was with traditional politicians, you know, this, this alderman or that guy, he was terrible. You know, he, he, he looked on them, he could not make small talk, he could not put his arm around their shoulder and press the flesh. He withdrew from them. He, he, didn't like, he didn't like being with them. He couldn't tell them funny little jokes, even though he had a very good and wry sense of humor. And I remember that, that night in, 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 I think it was in Omaha, and he came out there and, and Hubert Humphrey, uh, he, there was a meeting of the party faithful. I don't know, it was a, Jef uh, a Jefferson Jackson Day dinner or what. And there's Hubert Humphrey, and he and came in, and first they introduced Bobby, and he got a rather small applause, because the party machinery was still, you know, rather distant uh, from him. Uh, and then they introduced Hubert, and Hubert got a great big applause. And then Robert Kennedy gave a speech that night, and it was really a very, very good speech, you know. I mean, it was really one of his best. He talked about what kind of, you know, what kind of country uh, we were going to be and the fact that, uh, you know, American life seemed to be uh, really too much measured by, uh, oh, the, the, the gross national product. But it also, I think he said, uh, you know, measured uh, the Speck's rife, uh, knife and, and Whitman's rifle. And f but he fell flat and he didn't. It was a very good speech, but he fell flat and he was chilled and he lost his his, uh, his timing and so forth, and it went very badly. And someone asked, later asked him about it, and he said, yeah, those really aren't my kind of people. You know, just as you're talking about that, perhaps as we near the end of this conversation with David Halberstam, who incidentally uh, copped the Pulitzer Prize for his coverage of the events in Vietnam as he saw it as a member of the staff of the New York Times. Every now and then, you and the New York Times would have difference of opinion, too, mm. with the editorial, and you now mm. and then would be different, yes. too. And the book, The Making of a Quagmire, uh, the new one is The Unfinished Odyssey of Robert Kennedy and uh, Random House, the publishers. Think of a, a little event, very minor, it seems, in your book, and yet quite revealing, the funeral of Martin Luther King, when all the political figures were there. It was a matter of ritual, of course. And this is a question that uh, observers always look upon with some wry sense. But uh, there's Kennedy, and he took his jacket off, and so you don't do that at a funeral, you know. The fact is, uh, there was a natural feeling. It was a hot day. He took the jacket off, as people do sometimes. Yes. You don't do that, but he did it. You see? Well, That's rather interesting. Well, I remember. I remember we had a, th that night. I was with a great colleague. I don't know if you ever met Jack Nelson of the L.A. Times. You know, he was really a ma magnificent reporter. He's really a, a conscience. He's a conscience of the United States. He works for the L.A. Times down in Atlanta. And he's really just a tough, tough, good man. And that night we were sitting there and we both were talking about Bobby because that, that day, it was as if that crowd of Negroes that day in Atlanta had anointed Bobby. I mean, he was their, their leader. And as he went by, you could just hear the crowd yelling to him, Bobby, Bobby, as though reaching out, as though anointing him to take King's place. It was a very touching moment. But I remember watching him with his, with his jacket off and shirt sleeves. And I guess he didn't have his shirt sleeves well. But I, I remember feeling that maybe it was a little bit demagogic, that he was a little bit sort of, I don't know whether it was tough cult or whatever, youth cult, but I was a little bit annoyed by it. And... And um, and that night that we were talking, I was arguing with Jack Nelson, and he uh, 
And he says, you know, oh, Martin Luther King, it was a terribly hard day. Martin Luther King would have taken his, his jacket off. And I said, no, he wouldn't have. He said, sure he would have. It's, it's a normal thing. And I said, uh, no, he wouldn't. He said, yes, he did. In fact, he did at the funeral of J J Jimmy Lee Jackson, you know, one of the white ministers who was shot down there. And I thought, you know, case closed. But I thought it was a, a typical example of, of all of us doubting Robert Kennedy. He could do uh, the innocent. Lee, Jimmy and one Lee, could, Jimmy, Jimmy Lee Jackson, that, black. Yeah, that, that, when, that, when, uh, that when Robert Kennedy did something, that those, the rest of us doubted it, that he, could, he was always bigger than life. He could never be viewed as, as a normal man, you know. Perhaps one last question to ask. Yeah. Beside me, unfinished, because this is, and this is the subtext of the book, written. I come back to you as a reporter, one of the very good reporters, there are a good number of America, more and more of the young reporters. Uh, the reportage, now we come to reportage. Yes. This, is, this is what I call non-detached reportage, and w in which, of which I am in favor. You know, mm. another thing is detached. But I once told one him is part he, of something. He, once, more of he once asked me on the, uh, the campaign, he saw me reading on the campaign plane, and he said, <coughs> uh, what is that you're reading? And I said, well, it's a book called Division Street USA, and I said, I think it's the best book on, uh, wow. on America I've read in the last five years. And he, he made a note to get it. I, I guess uh, he never got around to it. But, uh, but I know that he wanted and I know that his staff, uh, Jeff Greenfield, had been pushing him to read it for quite a while. Now, let's continue with your yeah. question. Now that well, we've this, no, the question is reporters, <laughs> uh, journalists, particularly younger ones today, is there a, how can I put it, is there more, I hate to use that overused word, involvement, you think the word I can think of at the moment, that is, the old tradition of the reporter is the cool, detached guy, hard-boiled, you know, no matter what, the Ben Heck MacArthur school. Sure. There has been a change. Well, I think there has to be. I mean, I just think that the, the, the society is too sophisticated and people are getting better educated all the time. And I think people not only want to know what happened, but I think more important, they want to know how a reporter feels at a given moment. They want, they want to know what his reactions were, you know. I always thought the New York Times made a terrible mistake the day... Uh, the day John Kennedy was uh, assassinated, because they had one of the great reporters in America there, Tom Wicker, and they let Wicker cover it, and he did a magnificent job, but they never let him write what he felt. And he should have written one thing, what he himself, who'd covered it, felt personally. And, and they later did it in, in the little house organ called Times Talk, and of course it was excellent and reprinted about 500 other places. But I think people want to know what a reporter's reaction, what his involvement in is. And I think for one thing, they they themselves then can measure events better. I think that, I think that the times are moving very quickly. They can yeah. get enough facts off the television yeah. screen. You so know. The reason I ask that is that we have computers that can get facts, that can add up figures. And uh, of the magazine which you're associated, Harper's, I know Dan Wakefield is to it. Yeah. And Dan Wakefield's last book, Between the Lines, yeah. to this very theme, what I felt more than what I saw, which yeah. is in my previous work, see. Yeah. So in a sense, you reflect this. Oh, I think, and, and I think the young ones more and yeah. more. In fact, the young ones are even more <coughs> radical than people like myself. They seem to want to think they can do it all by feeling. I think you can make a good case that there's a lot to be said for going to the library and talking to people who've known a subject for a number of years too. That you can't do it just by mood. You have to do some homework as yeah. well. I think you you know this really very well. I wasn't ordinating yeah. the need for facts. Yeah but also something called truth. Yeah, and, and trying truth to finding out. is more than a compilation of facts. facts and, involves the feeling. And, and also trying to in an impression in your own reactions. But I think more and more so. I think, for instance, the New York Times, a paper I used to work for, and it's quite a good paper. I think they're going to have a terrible time already. I think they already are trying to get the very best young men because I don't think the best young reporters of a, of, of a generation are going to be at ease writing those nice little bland, gray, 600-word stories. I think they're going to demand more, and either the Times is going to have to change or it's going to have to get sort of some of the second team. And so we have a double development that has happened. I think the, the, this, this very book itself indicates that in a very vivid, excellent way. David Halberstam's book, The Unfinished Odyssey of Robert Kennedy. In a sense, <laughs> The Unfinished Odyssey for all of us, yes. too. Random House, the publishers. Sir? Thank you very much. Thank you, Studs.